Hello and welcome everyone to the Mebhi Muslim podcast. I'm Maryam Heather, producer and host of MBM, and I'm doing a special episode for International Women's Day, a little different from the usual MBM series. In this episode, I am in conversation with two members of the Led by Foundation, India's first leadership incubator that focuses on the professional development of Muslim women. Dipanjali Lehri is the chief operating officer and Fatima Cheba is the program manager at Led by which has been running training plus mentoring programs and fellowships to support young Muslim women in India enter entrepreneurial and corporate workspaces. In this episode, Dipanjali and Fatima talk about their personal and professional experiences that have shaped their understanding of the challenges that Muslim women face. Fatima highlights what growing up as the only Muslim student felt like and how working with an educational nonprofit enabled a closer understanding of the way caste gender and class barriers impact students' aspirations and professional outlooks. Dipanjali shares how she had not hired a single Muslim woman candidate in her years of working across IT, retail and FMCG sectors and the differences between multinationals and Indian companies when it comes to diversity, equity and inclusion. We also discuss the current state of Muslim women participation within India's formal and informal sectors the challenges that structural inequities impose on women, and how diverse are the career needs and visions for Muslim women in urban versus rural parts. This MBM episode also offers a glimpse of the long journey that Indian workplaces have to make towards religious diversity, inclusion, and representation across all channels of management and leadership. Finally, we talk about Seattle becoming the first American city to add caste to its anti-discrimination laws and if there is hope for similar changes within India in the coming times. Hi, Dipanjali. Hi, Fatima. It's very nice to have you on the Mebhi Muslim podcast. How are you both doing? Very good. Thank you for having us, Mariam. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. I'm quite excited to have you both. And it's only because I have been following the work being done by Led By for a while now. And we are celebrating International Women's Day and Women's Month. So it just makes for the perfect reason to have both of you on this conversation and really talk about the experiences and the journeys you both have made as individuals that have uh, kind of driven you to be a part of Led By and support its growth. Yeah, thank you for having us. I mean, it's great that that we have somebody who is um, an extension of the community doing this for us. So really lovely to be here. So maybe we can start with just, again, talk about your personal or professional experience. And Dipanjali, we have briefly spoken about your own experience being in the industry for about 15 years, you know, hiring people from all backgrounds. Can you maybe share a bit of that experience and then share your experience of working with Led By? Yeah, so I want to actually just go back to um, to when I started off my career. So I started off, so I had a really interesting career trajectory. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was just figuring my way around for I think about the first two or three years of my career. And then I settled and was really happy doing a project management role. 
Um, and I grew into that role in this very large multinational organization. And I decided that this is where I want to, to have my career. And I worked in these really large organizations with hundreds of thousands of employees. And it was great and I was doing really well. But I remember every single day I used to come back and I used to either tell my family or my friends that, you know, I'm not happy. I don't know why, but like something is missing and I don't know what it is. And anyway, that happened for about like 15, no, 13 years. And then COVID hit. And I said that the world is in turmoil. And if everything is changing, then I should change as well. And it was the worst time to actually leave my job, I remember. And everybody was against it. But I said that, let me just drop and see what happens. You know, what is the worst that, that is going to happen? And I said that, let me move to social development because that seems to give people a lot of joy. And, you know, and I'm sure that, you know, it would be a great opportunity for me because now I've learned everything. And, you know, I want to see if I can contribute to another industry. Because by then I had switched about two or three, three industries by then, three or four industries. And I said, social development, I'm sure is a place that, you know, I would be able to figure this out as well. So I took the plunge and I started developing networks. I didn't have anybody. I didn't know anyone. I didn't, you know, I had no connections, no networks. And I started meeting people and I was, um, you know, speaking with multiple people. And then through all of that, I met Ruha and she was, I remember, she was my 51st founder or organization that I had spoken to. And it really clicked, you know, and I don't know what it was, but I remember through that conversation, we began talking and um, she said, you know, why are you interested in this, this organization? And we work with Muslim women and all of that. And I said, why are you interested in speaking with me? I'm not a Muslim woman, you know. Um, but through that conversation, I remember chatting with her and I told her, I said, hey, you know what? I said, I think like unconsciously, I'm really intrigued with what you do because A, I don't have a Muslim friend at that point, uh, 13 years uh, into my career and you know, all of that. I didn't have a Muslim friend. I had worked with one Muslim colleague. And worst of all, I had hired no Muslim women, no Muslims, you know. And for me, when I was ch uh, chatting with Ruha, I remember like feeling really weird about it and feeling this. Um, I was embarrassed and also really surprised at myself. And I said, what's going on? I'm, I consider myself a really liberal person. And I come from a liberal background and education and family and everything. I said, what's going on? There must be something wrong. Um, so anyway, through that, I eventually I got the role and I started working with Ruha. But I understand now why this role is, is additionally special for me, because I think it also represents a lot of what today's workforce industry is like. You know, um, there are mo more people like me than there are like, you know, anybody from our community, from the led by community. And what does tend to happen is that we eventually hire people like us, which is why we see more women or firstly, we don't see more women. But if we do see more women, they're mostly from backgrounds like mine, pedigree like mine, you know, which is, I think, a problem because then you're not truly being diverse and diversity is a question that everybody is raising right now and you're not being true to yourself. So I think that was what led me to to led by. And um, that's why I'm still here. So it's, it's a much larger problem that I'm trying to also work towards along with led by. And it also does give me a lot of personal joy as well. Dipanjali, um, before I move Fatima to you, Dipanjali, I have a follow up question, which is, can you define the pedigree 
that you come from yeah so i'm from a convent educated school it was the best school in the city that i lived in i uh, studied a specialized college i had a specialized college education and it was from the best college um for that particular course and of course that course had nothing to do with my career so i studied hotel management um and it has nothing to do with you know um business strategy or project management but it still was a really good college you know so that's the pedigree i mean so i also do know what others look for in terms of pedigree so you know when you look for somebody when you're hiring somebody and you look for you know you can eliminate people's names and the cities that they are from but when you look at their college or when you look at companies that they work for i mean that's the pedigree that we're talking about so if you look at somebody who's from a tier 1 college um or who's worked in a name brand multinational organization you automatically switch and say hey this person must be ready to go and must be really good but that is a problem today you know and that's what we're also trying to eliminate that takes me fatima to you now because as dipanjali was saying she has a background which will be considered sort of a a pedigree you know one of the best institutions to work from uh, work with have you know, highly educated background um fatima you have i'm sure have that as well along with the fact that you are you represent a minority community and in yes. your experience how has that modulated your understanding of the workforce industry in india today right i think yeah i completely echo what you saying that what you're saying in terms of me having had some of these opportunities while also being a minority uh, in this country right um and i think it goes to say the difference in experiences are not that much for me and what i what i would go on to say is that i did a fellowship where i taught students and that's where my understanding of inequity even began uh, before that i had no concept of what that word meant or what diversity meant what inclusion meant it didn't it it was just not a part of my world um because i was just yeah like you know a privileged kid living in mumbai going to the best schools going to the best college and in those spaces even if there was some sort of a some sort of discrimination i wasn't at a place to recognize it um that's where that's how school and college was for me um and as i moved into working with communities in mumbai and students in mumbai who came from backgrounds um that weren't privileged uh and work and, and you know like really working in a government school of mumbai i realized that the inequities that existed are large just in terms of the opportunities i received and the opportunities the students that i worked with received um and within that group of students as well inequities existed right so it started with gender i i saw how the parents of the male students would react when something went wrong with let's say behavior or marks or whatever and you know it was more about oh how do we get this person back on track whereas with my uh, girl students it would often be like you know if she's not studying then let's just let's just pull her out because i don't want this extra tension you know mm-hmm. 
and it it literally just started for me from there and from a point of saying that oh like you know even within this there is so much inequity um and therefore everyone's experience of these things can be so so different um and then i delved one level deeper within the gender itself of my students um and within my girl students i i started also experiencing um more inequities when it came to students from other backgrounds versus from minority back- backgrounds and by minority i mean muslims dalits those those groups as well right uh, who migrated from like very very poor parts of the country versus people who like been in mumbai and you know have had some sort of background in mumbai so those were the kinds of backgrounds i started noticing which really affected uh, from the get go how these students were even performing in class because there's so much more to uh, a person being able to do well like the environment needs to sort of facilitate that and that itself isn't there right so the inequity and the gap starts so much uh, earlier than we even talking about where we are talking about like you know workforce and opportunities in the workplace i i go back right up to that like up to schooling and maybe even like early childhood care where these girls are already on a like a disadvantage and that's where they sort of start right so it's really important to even go back go back and look at it from a lens of saying that it's not only about saying equal opportunities but it's also about bridging this gap that starts so many years um before we even get to a place of um hiring these women in the workforce and so that brought me to like so i, I worked at this organization for up to 6 years in different capacities uh, really looked at the problem from different angles um then went on to do a masters in social entrepreneurship where i also like really learned about other facets of what it means uh, to work in a system to make it more equitable and at that point i was looking for something yeah something where i could like where i felt excited where i felt like okay this is what i want to do um and i i like i thankfully found led by and so therefore the three reasons that really brought me here one is just everything that i explained about how i have come to understand inequity and therefore the ex- therefore the resources we need to put in into a certain group to not only bring them up to speed but also to facilitate that that space for them in terms of learning in terms of a safe space they don't have that right so that needs to be given and i see led by doing that for this group of, of people so that's my first reason my second is basically the fact that um this group of people are people that i identified with i, I didn't have this uh, group of women maybe i had other spaces that facilitated learning and were safe spaces for me but not a group of people that i immediately identify with based on this particular aspect right so that was the second piece that really got me here and the third is that the team is lovely so i i actually spoke to different people in the team and i'm like okay you know this is going to be a really fun team to work with and i think that's also like 8 hours i'm spending 8 hours of my day with uh these people it it has to be fun and it it was it has been really really fun thank you fatima i think a very important and strong note that you make um while explaining your experience is the the large gap of uh, opportunity and effectively 
inequity that kind of tantamounts up until the point someone even reaches the point of applying for jobs. You know, we are not just looking at someone's educational background, we're looking at their social settings, we're looking at the economic settings as well and the interlacing of all of them together. My question um, to both of you, and you both can decide who wants to go first for this, is through your fellowships and the accelerator program, how have you identified these gaps at different magnitudes as you receive applications from, from all over India? And what have been your experiences and observations in mitigating those gaps, in closing those gaps? Dipanjali? Yeah, so we've been very intentional about who we bring on to our programs. So our programs, we have two programs. We have a leadership development program, which is for early stage working professionals. And we have an, an accelerator program, which is a professional development program, which is for any Muslim woman who is um, any Indian Muslim woman who is 18 to 30 years old. So you could be at any career stage, you know, so you know you could be a fresher or you could have about three or four years of work experience. You could be somebody who is, you know, returning or you're, you're making a career comeback. You could be somebody who has a current gap in her career. Um, so what we really do is our programs are not meant for or we don't actually intake people who are the best. You know, we don't intake people who are from the best pedigree college or um, you know, if you are a topper in your class, because what we do then believe is that you have the access and you most likely have the agency. Um, it would be great branding for led by if we did bring on such people, because of course you'd be a flag bearer. But what we're really trying to do is we're trying to penetrate the length and the breadth of the country, identifying women who don't have that access and who don't have that agency. So we are looking for people from tier two cities um, and most likely tier three as well. Um, we are looking for people from uh, who are first generation learners. We are looking for people who are from low income households as well. Um, and for us, low income means, you know, somebody who's got less than five lakhs per annum annual income. Um, so we are looking for people like that. And that's what we do as part of our application process. So. You know, one would imagine that if we do intake, like, let's say 30 people into a program, why do we spend three months in the application process? This is why, because we are looking for people who really have, who don't have that agency, who don't have that access, but who have the aspiration, who really wants to strive very hard to get ahead in her career. So we look for those traits um, through multiple rounds and identify the most, the candidates who deserve our program the most, you know, so that's what we try to do. And that's why, you know, and that's why we spend so much time on our entire application. And would you have a sort of ratio of how successful this kind of um, efforts, are, how successful these kinds of efforts are for every program? Yeah, so for both programs collectively, that's how we do our analysis. So we do have 60% of our current um, current participants who are from low-income households. Um, but what we don't have is we don't have as many from Tier 2 and Tier 3 cities. I think our Tier 1 ratio is about 40% and Tier 2 is Tier 2 and Tier 3 is about 60%. We still want to be able to to penetrate into um, the smaller cities as well 
but i think the reason why that is is because and it's it's not an excuse but i think the reason why we still get a lot more applications from tier 1 cities is because our programs are virtual and um mm. you know there you have to have a device you have to have stable internet um you know so it's most likely that's why but we are working towards making sure that we do reach colleges students working communities from um the the tier 2 cities as well but we definitely do have that 60% low income household group and i think also it's because i mean you're still a relatively new foundation and you've just started and i was particularly interested when i was going through how you must have managed the covid impact as well i mean you kind of started much at the cusp of the pandemic you know to to yeah. speak and you took it from there you onboarded people you created teams and i think that's a fantastic effort that must be lauded uh for everything that you both and the team collectively has been doing in terms of going uh, the way of fellowships versus accelerators in a way that you want to showcase women that these are some of the pain points that you might have for example resume development for example you know preparing for an interview writing cover letters how much of it is mostly a challenge for women who are in there so undergraduate you know just finishing college level to um women who have like you said taken a break from from work for different responsibilities and then they are trying to return so the the way that you look at this accelerator program um how how do you manage the efforts when you have this this very diverse cohort fatima so i think when it comes to skill right like we're talking about skills here like resume building like how do you create your linkedin uh, profile these are skills and so through our workshops what we do is we sort of build on the skills of these particular topics and what we've often realized is that your the needs are pretty homogeneous in terms of saying that hey this is how you do it now when you're talking about the differences right like in terms of the nuance of saying that hey like my resume needs to be slightly different because of this like five year gap that i've had for xyz reason um for that what we do is we have a bunch of advisors we have about 100 advisors uh, on boarded with us who sort of uh, offer one on one office hours to our uh, to our all our participants and in that space uh, our participants really get into the nuance of what they are seeking right it could be that they really just want to chat about the the field that they want to go into or they might actually bring their resume to that one on one and say that hey can you look at it and can you help me like tweak it um so our one on ones ha- open up that space to really go into the nuance and and cater to our participants one on one and their needs one on one so that's how we like do it at that level and in the experience of running these programs are there any particular sectors that you see your participants really keen on on entering because by the way i have seen all of your alumni and also some of the fellows they come from very different um com- colleges universities doing some very interesting very different things um but i'm curious to know if that's another lens that you are working with honestly we're completely like industry agnostic um mm-hmm. and this is the reason right because like we have like over the past Four years, we've just seen such a large, diverse group 
needing similar support. So we're like, hey, like actually it doesn't matter which field you come from. These are some basic skills that are going to help you in any field, or help you get ahead in any field, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore our mix is pretty large. So we have like, you know, we have a 30% from the STEM backgrounds. We have like another like 20 to 30% from development and like journalism, creative arts, that that background. Um, and then we also have people from um, like, you know, in the public sector. So like people who are aspiring to uh, move into like IS positions, things like that. So we really like have that entire range. Um, and what we've realized is that and there are two kinds of challenges in the larger like larger scheme of things one is a entry challenge like an entry entry barrier challenge so it could be an entry to a college it could be entry to a job and so we're really looking and like trying to solve that and the second challenge again in the larger scheme of things is once you've entered a particular job or a college how do you take that next step like how do you take a step into the leader into a leadership position or into like um into a job that's like worthy of the education that you've had things like that so that's a second kind of challenge that we're trying to solve now where you're where where you want to go is totally okay like you want to be in stem you want to be in like we'll figure it out for you because we have that range of advisors to really that we also rely on to you know get feedback to get uh, advice so that we can then support our participants i am Actually, you've kind of uh, ended this on a very important note and very interesting note to to move towards the DEI aspect of the Indian workforce, um, the workplaces that we all have participated in. Maybe, Dipanjali, you can start with this because earlier in the interview, you mentioned that for 15 years, um, you did not hire a single Muslim woman. You have interviewed them. uh, You had interacted with them, but there was no... You know, it just was something that now that you think back had never happened. Can you maybe shed more light on that? Talk about like the DEI principles that most of the bigger corporate workplaces today want to embody and envision and maybe start with what have what has changed, how, how successful they have been and then what are the challenges that they're still uh, struggling to overcome? Yeah, so one of the things so you're absolutely right. I actually, um, I had interviewed multiple women from various backgrounds, but I hadn't eventually hired them because I remember the organizations that I had worked in, we had very specific requirements, um, you know, both hard skills, soft skills, competencies, all of that. And for whatever reason, we just didn't hire, I didn't hire them. Um, but you know, when I was starting off my career, diversity and equity and inclusion were words that we were just not familiar with. We didn't have a diversity leader and we didn't have DEI and all of that. We just didn't, you know. But I remember about three or four years into my career and I was working for a large uh, American multinational at that point, we started talking and we started, you know, joining trainings for um, inclusion of LGBTQI+. Um, and for me, that was fantastic because I was young and I said, wow, that, that you know, that it's a really cool opportunity. And, you know, why haven't we thought of this before? And why does this mandate have to come from um, our corporate headquarters? Um, so I was part of that. And then I slowly started seeing, you know, how 
that organization that I had worked in really imbibed those strategies. And the way they used to do it um, was to have very specific mandates saying that, hey, for every single department, we're going to have these agendas as part of our diversity and inclusion. And this is way into like my I was already about four or five years into that organization. Um, but they had specific agendas that we had to meet. And these agendas came from our leadership in the organization. The other thing that they used to do is that on a quarterly basis, we used to go back to those agendas and say, hey, we used to use data and we used to say, hey, are we meeting those or not? And if we are, then great, celebrate. But if we're not, then, you know, why are we not meeting those? Um, and then after that, we used to also be very particular about where we were tapping into our hiring pools. So our sourcing pools at that, you know, previously was limited. Um, we used to go to campuses. We used to have like very few lateral hiring. But then we expanded and we said, you know, let's diversify our pool and let's bring in and let's partner with organizations that support the LGBTQI community. You know, and that was great in that, that, that organization. And then cut to, you know, 12 years or 13 years into my career, I realized that diversity and inclusion in India continues to remain in this very narrow spectrum. And when you talk about diversity, diversity in India really means two. Um, it means gender and it means sexual preference. And for me, it, it blows my mind that, you know, I've spent over a decade and the conversation is exactly the same, you know. And there are very few organizations and I have to say that these there are very few American organizations that I've worked in where the diversity spectrum has slightly broadened and they do talk about caste. They do talk about religion. They have specific religious groups or affinity groups within their organizations but that's in america you know and maybe parts of europe we just do not have that in india in india the diversity spectrum has remained as is and you can call yourselves you know equal opportunity um, but your diversity our diversity agenda remains very very limited and you know when and this is something that i bring up in conversations with uh, my colleagues and now friends who continue to stay in recruitment and when I talk about diversity immediately the conversation is around gender but I'm like no but that's not what I mean even within gender even within women there are multiple intersectionalities and are you even looking at it you know and if you are looking at it what areas are you looking at and I can tell you very clearly that religion is definitely not one of them and that's a huge problem and the sad part is that there are also very few organizations that are talking about religious diversity, you know, and which is why the work that we do at Led By is so very important. And we need to speak more loudly and, you know, much more about this problem that continues to exist in India. Religious diversity is also something which I have seen is um, not just something you are silent about. It's something that we often miss out on educating or informing ourselves about as well. Uh, I particularly can share from my own experience that by virtue of having a Muslim name uh, for the colleagues that I used to have when I was working in India, there were some very um, obvious questions or remarks about if Ramzan was going on, then there would be around the concept of fasting, you know, if Eid was around, it would be around food which I think is a very minimalist or a very small aspect of bringing your 
religious identity or having a religious identity. It is an, an important part, but it can be much more than that. Um, and I've, at that point, again, I think Fatima will associate with me on this, is that when you grow in a place or if you've always been sort of like the only Muslim student in the class or the only Muslim colleague for to someone in, in a department, you don't, you don't see them as clearly or you don't pay that much attention until you come out of that space and you actually spend time in, and wonder uh, what more could have been done to really have conversations where I can assess and understand that diversity of religion and within that religion, the diversity of, of life choices and lifestyles can be talked about, um, can be known, because then the binaries start breaking away very easily, right? And um, I, I feel with led by also, this is a question I was thinking over that while you have Indian Muslim women as an umbrella that under which you are getting more women to join, learn, educate themselves, you know, expand their horizons, there must be so much diversity that you see and, and you learn, learn from. And maybe you can share a few examples of, of your experiences there. And, and that would be great to really continue the conversation. So I think, firstly, I identified with everything that you said. Uh, you're so right that um, I, I felt it too, right? I've always felt a pressure to fit a mold uh, in every space, like in a school space, in a college space, um, saying that, oh, because I'm Muslim, like it's it, it gets reduced to these one or two practices or maybe five practices that right. they believe they know about Muslims, you know, um, and therefore you can't be anything else but that. And if you, and you, if you have to, then you have to really break, um, break out of that mold, which is unfair for us, like to expect from a student or from some, for, or from someone who's really trying to figure out who they are at that point. Right. So how do you do that while also fighting something like it's 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 like a really huge uh, problem. And I think what led by did it was my first month, I think, at led by and we had this identity panel with our fellows. And so we had three uh, women who are older Muslim women. Uh, one came from journalism, one came from a communications background uh, and one came from um, like she, she works at a multinational tech company right and um it was so interesting to hear what these three women had to say and also again very differently brought up very different identities uh one chose to wear a hijab the other two weren't in hijabs and they were talking to our fellows and you know our fellows had such similar problems they were just like oh like i work somewhere and I walk into this room, which is like a like a room full of men. And the only way I see I can connect is by like picking up a glass of like wine or alcohol, because that's the only place they connect out of work. And a lot of opportunities get like distributed around that time. But I am not allowed. I mean, I'm not part of that group because of my identity. And it's so unfair. And, you know, it was so it was so relatable to the rest of the group. And we we're like, oh, yeah, like. These are instances that we've all faced in our lives. And there is a certain exclusion there as well. Right. Um, and then all of these women also spoke of different parts of their life where they faced exclusion, 
um, based on the clothes that they're wearing, the religion that they follow um, or don't follow or like, you know, or like questions right. around that and things like that. And one thing, one, one uh, common thread that came from all three of their conversations was that, you know, if you're in a space where you're feeling this exclusion all the time, then that place is not for you. Um, you rather move out and use your talent and use your energies in a place where that where that's going to be better accepted than you know continue being in a toxic environment um and i think that was of course you would i mean one one could argue that 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 would also be um a privileged way of looking at things every every i mean every person does not have the liberty to say that oh i'm going to quit because i'm feeling discriminated against and just move on um but it's also a way of standing up right saying that hey like this is where like this is my line and i'm not going to cross this uh, beyond this point um the other thing that came out in terms of stories around that same around that same point was in that group like i said there were there was this woman who was in a hijab and this other person who was our fellow said that hey like i identify as a muslim but like i drink i smoke and like i i i i don't like do any of these other uh like typically muslim things like in 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 their most uh yeah typical sense and it was so interesting to see that conversation happen because this lady is like oh that's really cool like i mean i respect you for who you are i see you and you're still part of my sisterhood you know and and also getting that sort of support from a group of women it was so empowering to see you go like oh you know like this is finally a space where all aspects of my identity are accepted i don't have to hide away any parts of me to be able to be accepted in this in this space and that's so powerful right to have that um so yeah that that there was something i wanted to share it is in, it is absolutely thrilling to hear you say all of that fatima and uh, as you saw i i was sharing small hearts um uh, while you were sh- uh, saying that um dipanjali please go ahead yeah for me it's more academic you know because um i remember when we had completed our um our hiring bias study and um, we were traveling across india ruha and myself we were traveling across india and we were sharing parts of our study with academic groups and you know student groups and just a wide um, you know just a wide range of people and we had traveled across the north and very deeply a- across the south and one of the biggest differences i saw and i know that muslim women are not a homogeneous group you know i know that now um and i i learned that very quickly in my first couple of months in in led by just like fatima i had also learned that really quickly but you know from a very academic sense i i i remember when i was traveling um to the south and we were sharing about our research and our research study claimed that you know if you have these two profiles in front of you one with a hindu sounding name and one with a muslim sounding name organizations um or recruiters would prefer to hire um the the hindu sounding person 47% or yeah almost 50% more times than the muslim sounding woman and you know we had when we were traveling to the north everybody was like yes this has happened and we're you know it's it's not surprising it's terrible what can we do to change it 
But in the South, the conversation was completely different. You know, and they turned around and said, no, that's not true. I want to look at your data and I want to see which industries you're looking at because I can see it in my own community. Muslim women are being hired much more. And, you know, we saw it among students, we saw it amongst academics, and we saw it amongst professionals. And that difference between the North and the South itself was so startling. And I loved it because our entire strategy in the South completely changed. And we said, great, tell us what you are doing differently so that we can take all of those learnings and then utilize it and then share it amongst our friends, you know, across the rest of the country. Because you're obviously doing something which is different. And, you know, they didn't say that it's equally represented, but they're saying that, you know, that we're pretty much the same here. There is no discrimination. And that for me was really, really startling. And that was one experience that I know that I'm going to carry for the rest of my life because your data can say one thing, but, you know, there are lived experiences of women in different Muslim women in different parts of the country who, um, you know, don't agree with that. And I loved it. I loved that, um, that experience that we had with our hiring bias research in the South. You're right. I, I'm equally thankful to you that you're sharing this on the podcast as well, because one of the key ways that I've constantly tried to grow this, this space of MBM is to constantly go back and question, what do I perceive as Indian Muslimness? You know, I might have some experiences and I have lived with a certain, um, I am born with that identity. That cannot be the full identity of the spectrum of what constitutes India. And what you're sharing with me is actually kind of reaffirming that. That in South, the picture can be very different. Um, when, you know, Fatima, when you shared about being in a place where there was one woman who was wearing a hijab and two others who were not, it also constantly underlines that homogeneity is, is such a poor indicator of, of having, uh, a, a, of understanding a community, you know. It's good to have an understanding of what largely the community represents, but it is very poor to understand just the scope of, of diversity. And I'm using the word diversity because that's the aim of this conversation as well, that while you are exclusively working to enhance the opportunities for Indian Muslim women, that is not homogenous group. That is not something that has a monolithic understanding or expectation as well. In fact, I was going through some of your, um, in, in your blogs, on your website, there are so many students and, and former fellows who have talked about just that the fact that they could not associate with certain aspects of Muslim identity or the behavior of the community as well. I, I think there was one former, um, one alumni who has written that she looks at the responsibility of what privileged Muslims carry in the country as well, you know. Um, we can understand that there is um, there is lack of opportunity and there is there are difficulties and challenges for, for Indian Muslims to access certain opportunities. But having said that, what is the responsibility with the privilege that you carry? And uh, I think it's just a, it's a fantastic way to constantly reassess the positions we are in. In terms of what has changed? And Dipanjali, this question kind of is for you because you have explained through the conversation, the DEI and, and the sort of like the token with which it is carried in the Indian organizations. What do you think with the 
also I would say the impact of how the American and the larger European um, workplaces have also been constantly shifting. We have the, I know, anti-caste discrimination law in Seattle now. What do you think can be the impact of those kinds of look, massive efforts on Indian workplaces today? And do you see a domino effect at some point emerging? Do I see a domino effect emerging now? No. But my hope is that it does. Because just like, um, you know, hiring for diversity when it came to gender, hiring for diversity when it came to sexual orientation, that came from the West, to be honest. It didn't come. It didn't emerge from here. Um, I'm hoping that it does happen, you know, whether it takes... I, I hope I hope it happens quickly. I hope it happens sooner rather than later. But what we should do, and which is why I say that the work that we do at Led By is so very important, is a lot of what we're doing is we're actually trying to change system. We're trying to make systemic changes, you know, by eventually making policy level changes. But um, I, I hope that when we do work with organizations, and I will say that while there are larger organizations that have specific diversity agendas for religions, I will say that there have been a lot of Indian organizations that partner with us very specifically because they say that they do want to hire religious uh, minorities as well, which is great. But is that happening um, on a large scale? It's not, which is why we carry the burden of making sure that we are speaking loudly about the work that we're doing. We're showcasing the talent that we have in our hiring pools and we're making sure that organizations hire this talent and then say, you know, um, you know what more they can do and then eventually expand their diversity scope as well. So that's really what I hope to see Indian organizations do. Um, it is slow, but I'm hoping that that changes. Hmm. I have a final question for either of you. And I do think it's something that, again, is very fundamental to understanding women's participation, uh, women's labor participation in India. When we look at the actual numbers, and I'm talking about for all women, it's still 30% of the women in the formal sector. Remaining percentage is still in the informal space. And, And I think all of us interact with the informal sector almost on a daily basis. It's particularly not a question for you both for as representatives of led by, but as women who have been in the Indian workforce for a long period of time, what changes at the policy level, at the institutional levels do you see can really change that in the percentage? And, and when we look at the, the marginalized or the minority status within the informal sector, then again, the, the challenges just add up. I'm happy to start and then Fatima, you can jump in. So you're absolutely right. We, um, as women, we do we do interact with other women who are in the informal workspace. I think at the, at the policy level, what really needs to change is that we need to pay attention to the fact that women, A, are not getting paid for, are getting, yeah, not getting paid for, for a lot of the labor and the household work that is being uh uh, is being showcased um, and that is a large part of their day right so that's one the second is the informal workspace needs to be more organized 
you know like there aren't enough organizations that are doing things to support you know domestic workers or laborers you know there there just isn't um and i think again like the west there are very slow changes that are being made over there and those can be adopted over here um so that's i think something that needs to be done and again needs to be done very very quickly because if you look at certain so while we do have statistics right that you know there uh, you know the the informal workspace is poor and there is just poor representation of women in the overall um, workforce look at certain states so look at tamil nadu a state which is very very high on labor when it comes to manufacturing you know like textile manufacturing very very high there so what are they doing differently you know so what are the changes that they've implemented learning from there there are states like i think arunachal pradesh is the other one which is no maybe not arunachal pradesh um but tamil nadu for sure is an is a state that we can learn so much from so i'd love to see what policy level changes they've made so that we can you know imbibe those for the rest of the states so that's just something that i wanted to share fatima i think the first thing that i want want to say off the bat is that like i wouldn't pretend to know how to answer that question even because what i understand of this problem is that it's a wicked problem right um <laughs> there are so many indicators that really sort of um that bleed into uh bleed into the fact that this person has the agency the right the skills um and the right mindsets to go out there and work be it formal informal whatever that is and therefore what i would say is that from my limited lens in the work that i've i've done right i would say that it's in terms of policy level work it really needs to be the the key is the implementation so if you go back and look at policies since independence things have been systematically been put into place for many many years and with each time they are getting more progressive as well if you go back and look at policies from 1947 we are one of those countries that actually is more equal when it comes to gender rights than many many countries out there in the world including the west right um so to begin with we were more equal in that sense the problem is the problem lies in the implementation and the socialization of people like how are we really building it into our social fabric uh because policy is there and we can keep working on on it at that level but how is it really trickling down to the to the nth user and i think that's the work that needs to be done and i'm so glad that now in india we do have these social consultancies things like that who are actually just purely working on these pieces but is there a place where we can do like more work there from the government because that's where large scale change can take place and policy level work can be done so i think yeah that's my take uh, on this piece dipanjali and just a last thought you know we also have to go back and see who is really making these policy level changes you know who is in that cabinet who is making these changes today a lot of the changes that are being made for women and for diversity equity all of that maybe not from the representatives of the community so if you are changing policies or if you are implementing policies for women then have you know 
have a board or have a cabinet that contains the representation that you truly need so that's what we really also need to look at yeah absolutely i think representation and representation that is driven by commitment to change is is kind of like the, the foundation of any policy level change that can happen uh, i believe in some in a lot of cases we have seen where representation is tokenism you will have women cabinet ministers you will have um, just you know mlas and mps they are given seats it happens at the lowest of rungs as well it happens at the panchayat level where the sarpanch is a woman um, but she will be the one making 25 rotis per meal for the family so the distribution of labor the understanding and again fatima just going back to what you were saying the social fabric i think conversations that are happening within homes within workplaces uh, within larger communities need to challenge the biases need to challenge the unconscious biases the conscious biases the stereotypes and i really think that today's conversation has in its limited manner covered all those aspects and i'm truly truly grateful to both of you for making the time for this thank you so much for joining mebhi muslim and again i deeply appreciate the work being done by your team and the led by foundation thank you so much maryam this was great thank you for giving us this platform and i hope to to everybody who is listening um you know that you do your little part to make sure that you also are part of a more diverse community thank you thank you maryam it was a lovely conversation i i feel like i have had so many sparks just within this conversation which i'm going to take back into thank my work thank you Thank you.